Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. We're continuing with The Conquest of Fred today, with the tail end of last chapter, new chunk of the next chapter, it's a kind of weird in-between episode because the runtime is just messing things up a little bit. The rest of this chapter will be next week, and if I've calculated it right, the following chapter will slot in after it. It's still a long episode today, so let's get started. Chapter 12. Objections. Section 4. We very much doubt that we need fear this contingency in a society really based on the entire freedom of the individual. In fact, in spite of the premium on idleness offered by the private ownership of capital, the really lazy man is comparatively rare, unless his laziness be due to illness. Among workmen, it is often said that the bourgeois are idlers. There are certainly enough of them. But they too are the exception. On the contrary, in every industrial enterprise, you are sure to find one or more bourgeois who work very hard. It is true that the majority of bourgeois profit by their privileged position to award themselves the least unpleasant tasks, and that they work under hygienic conditions of air, food, etc., which permits them to do their business without too much fatigue. But these are precisely the conditions which we claim for all workers, without exception. It must also be said that if, thanks to their privileged position, rich people often perform absolutely useless or even harmful work in society, nevertheless the ministers, heads of departments, factory owners, traders, bankers, etc., subject themselves for a number of hours every day to work which they find more or less tiresome, all preferring their hours of leisure to this obligatory work. And if in 9 cases out of 10 this work is a harmful work, they find it nonetheless tiring for that. But it is precisely because the middle class put forth a great energy, even in doing harm, knowingly or not, and defending their privileged position, that they have succeeded in defeating the landed nobility, and that they continue to rule the masses. If they were idlers, they would long since have ceased to exist, and would have disappeared like the aristocracy. In a society that would expect only four or five hours a day of useful, pleasant, and hygienic work, these same middle-class people would perform their task perfectly well, and they certainly would not put up with the horrible conditions in which men toil nowadays without reforming them. If Huxley spent only five hours in the sewers of London, rest assured that he would have found the means of making them as sanitary as his physiological laboratory. As to the laziness of the great majority of workers, only philistine economists and philanthropists can utter such nonsense. If you ask an intelligent manufacturer, he will tell you that if workmen only put it into their heads to be lazy, all factories would have to be closed. For no measure of severity, no system of spying, could be of any use. You should have seen the terror caused in 1887 among British employers when a few agitators started preaching the Go canny theory. Bad pay, bad work. Take it easy, do not overwork yourselves, and waste all you can. They demoralize the worker, they want to kill our industry, cried those same people who the day before invade against the immorality of the worker and the bad quality of his work. But if the workers were what they are represented to be, namely the idler whom the employer is supposed continually to threaten with dismissal from the workshop, what would the word 
demoralization signify? So when we speak of possible idlers, we must well understand that it is a question of a small minority in society, and before legislating for that minority, would it not be wise to study the origin of that idleness? Whoever observes with an intelligent eye sees well enough that the child reputed lazy at school is often the one which simply does not understand because he is being badly taught. Very often, too, it is suffering from cerebral anemia, caused by poverty and an anti-hygienic education. A boy who is lazy at Greek or Latin would work admirably were he taught science, especially if he were taught with the aid of manual labor. A girl who is stupid at mathematics becomes the first mathematician of her class if she, by chance, meets somebody who can explain to her the elements of arithmetic which she did not understand. And a workman, lazy in the workshop, cultivates his garden at dawn, while gazing at the rising sun, and will be at work again at nightfall, when all nature goes to his rest. Somebody has said that dust is matter in the wrong place. The same definition applies to nine-tenths of those called lazy. There are people gone astray, in a direction that does not answer to their temperament, nor to their capacities. In reading the biography of great men, we are struck with the number of idlers among them. They were lazy so long as they had not found the right path. Afterwards, they became laborious to excess. Darwin, Stevenson, and many others belonged to this category of idlers. Very often, the idler is but a man to whom it is repugnant to spend all his life making the 18th part of a pin or the hundredth part of a watch, while he feels he has exuberant energy which he would like to expend elsewhere. Often, too, he is a rebel who cannot submit to being fixed all his life to a workbench in order to procure a thousand pleasures for his employer, while knowing himself to be far the less stupid of the two, and knowing his only fault to be that of having been born in a hovel instead of coming into the world in a castle. Lastly, an immense number of idlers are idlers because they do not know well enough the trade by which they are compelled to earn their living. Seeing the imperfect thing they make with their own hands, striving vainly to do better, and perceiving that they never will succeed on account of the bad habits of work already acquired, they begin to hate their trade, and, not knowing any other, hate work in general. Thousands of workmen and artists who are failures suffer from this cause. On the other hand, he who since his youth has learned to play the piano well, to handle the plane well, the chisel, the brush, or the file, so that he feels that what he does is beautiful, will never give up the piano, the chisel, or the file. He will find pleasure in his work, which does not tire him, so long as he is not overdriven. Under the one name, idleness, a series of results due to different causes have been grouped of which each one could be a source of good, instead of being a source of evil to society. Like all questions concerning criminality and related to human faculties, facts have been collected, having nothing in common with one another. People speak of laziness or crime, without giving themselves the trouble to analyze the cause. They are in a hurry to punish these faults, without inquiring if the punishment itself does not contain a premium on laziness or crime. Footnote 1. This is why in a free society, 
if it saw the number of idlers increasing in its midst, would no doubt think of looking first for the cause of idleness in order to suppress it, before having recourse to punishment. When it is a case, as we have already mentioned, of simple bloodlessness, then before stuffing the brain of a child with science, nourish his system so as to produce blood, strengthen him, and, that he shall not waste his time, take him to the country or to the seaside. There teach him in the open air, not in books. Geometry by measuring the distance to a spire or the height of a tree. Natural sciences while picking flowers and fishing in the sea. Physical science while building the boat he will go to fish in. But for mercy's sake, do not fill his brain with classical sentences and dead languages. Do not make an idler of him. Or, here is a child which has neither order nor regular habits. Let the children first inculcate order among themselves, and later on, the laboratory, the workshop, the work that will have to be done in limited space, with many tools about, under the guidance of an intelligent teacher, will teach them method. But do not make disorderly beings out of them by your school, whose only order is the symmetry of its benches, and which, true image of the chaos in its teachings, will never inspire anybody with the love of harmony, of consistency, and method in work. Do not you see that by your methods of teaching, framed by a ministry for 8 million scholars who represent 8 million different capacities, you only impose a system good for mediocrities? conceived by an average of mediocrities? Your school becomes a university of laziness, as your prison is a university of crime. Make the school free, abolish your university grades, appeal to the volunteers of teaching. Begin that way, instead of making laws against laziness, which only serve to increase it. Give the workman who cannot condemn himself to make all his life a minute particle of some object, who is stifled at his little tapping machine, which he ends by loathing. Give him the chance of tilling the soil, of felling trees in the forest, sailing the seas in the teeth of a storm, dashing through space on an engine. But do not make an idler of him by forcing him all his life to attend to a small machine, to plough the head of a screw, or to drill the eye of a needle. Suppress the cause of idleness, and you may take it for granted that few individuals will really hate work, especially voluntary work, and that there will be no need to manufacture a code of laws on their account. Chapter 13. The Collectivist Wages System. Section 1. In their plans for the reconstruction of society, the collectivists commit, in our opinion, a twofold error. While speaking of abolishing capitalist rule, they intend, nevertheless, to retain two institutions which are the very basis of this rule, representative government and the wages system. As regards so-called representative government, we have often spoken about it. It is absolutely incomprehensible to us that intelligent men, and such are not wanting in the collectivist party, can remain partisans of national or municipal parliaments after all the lessons history has given them, in France, in England, in Germany, or in the United States. While we see parliamentary rule breaking up, and from all sides criticism of this rule growing louder, not only of its results, but also of its principles, how is it that the revolutionary socialists defend a system already condemned to die? 
built up by the middle classes to hold their own against royalty, sanctioning, and at the same time strengthening, their sway over the workers, parliamentary rule is preeminently a middle class rule. The upholders of this system have never seriously maintained that a parliament or a municipal council represent a nation or a city. The most intelligent among them know that this is impossible. The middle classes have simply used the parliamentary system to raise a protecting barrier against the pretensions of royalty without giving the people liberty. But gradually, as the people become conscious of their real interests, and the variety of their interests is growing, the system can no longer work. Therefore, Democrats of all countries vainly imagine various palliatives. The referendum is tried and found to be a failure. Proportional representation is spoken of, the representation of minorities, and other parliamentary utopias. In a word, they strive to find what is not to be found, and after each new experiment, they are bound to recognize that it was a failure, so that confidence in representative government vanishes more and more. It is the same with the wages system, because... Once the abolition of private property is proclaimed, and the possession in common of all means of production is introduced, how can the wages system be maintained in any form? This is, nevertheless, what collectivists are doing when they recommend the use of the labour checks as a mode of remuneration for labour accomplished for the great collectivist employer, the state. It is easy to understand why the early English socialists, since the time of Robert Owen, came to the system of labour checks. They simply tried to make capital and labour agree. They repudiated the idea of laying hands on capitalist property by means of revolutionary measures. It is also easy to understand why Proudhon took up later on the same idea. In his mutualist system, he tried to make capital less offensive, notwithstanding the retaining of private property, which he detested from the bottom of his heart, but which he believed to be necessary to guarantee individuals against the state. Neither is it astonishing that certain economists, more or less bourgeois, admit labour checks. They care little whether the worker is paid in labour notes or in coins stamped with the effigy of the republic or the empire. They only care to save from destruction the individual ownership of dwelling houses, of lands, of factories, in any case that at least of dwelling houses and the capital that is necessary for manufacturing. And labour notes would just answer the purpose of upholding this private property. As long as labour notes can be exchanged for jewels or carriages, the owner of the house will willingly accept them for rent. And as long as dwelling houses, fields and factories belong to isolated owners, men will have to pay these owners, in one way or another, for being allowed to work in the fields or factories, or for living in the houses. The owners will agree to be paid by the workers in gold, in paper money, or in checks exchangeable for all sorts of commodities, once that toll upon labour is maintained, and the right to levy it is left with them. But how can we defend labour notes? This new form of wagedom, when we admit that the houses, the fields, and the factories will no longer be private property, that they will belong to the commune, or the nation. Section 2. Let us closely examine this system of remuneration for work done, preached by the French, German, English, and Italian collectivists. 
The Spanish anarchists, who still call themselves collectivists, imply by collectivism the possession in common of all instruments of production, and the liberty of each group to divide the produce as they think fit, according to communist or any other principles. It amounts to this. Everybody works in field, factory, school, hospital, etc. The working day is fixed by the state, which owns the land, the factories, the roads, etc. Every working day is paid for with a labor note, which is inscribed with these words. Eight hours work. With this check, the worker can procure all sorts of merchandise in the stores owned by the state or by diverse corporations. The check is divisible so that you can buy an hour's work worth of meat, ten minutes worth of matches, or half an hour of tobacco. After the collectivist revolution, instead of saying two pence worth of soap, we shall say five minutes worth of soap. Most collectivists, true to the distinction laid down by middle-class economists, and by Marx as well, between qualified work and simple work, tell us, moreover, that qualified or professional work must be paid a certain quantity more than simple work. Thus, one hour's work of a doctor will have to be considered as equivalent to two or three hours' work of a hospital nurse, or to three or five hours' work of a navvy. Quote, Professional or qualified work will be a multiple of simple work, says the collectivist Granlund, because this kind of work needs a more or less long apprenticeship. End quote. Some other collectivists, such as the French Marxist Gide, do not make this distinction. They proclaim the equality of wages. The doctor, the schoolmaster, and the professor will be paid, in labor checks, at the same rate as the navvy. Eight hours visiting the sick in a hospital will be worth the same as eight hours spent in earthworks or else in mines or factories. Some make a greater concession. They admit that disagreeable or unhealthy work, such as sewerage, could be paid for at a higher rate than agreeable work. One hour's work of a sewer man would be worth, they say, two hours of a professor's work. Let us add that certain collectivists admit of corporations being paid a lump sum for work done. Thus, a corporation would say, Here are a hundred tons of steel. A hundred workmen were required to produce them, and it took them ten days. Their work day being an eight hours day, it has taken them eight thousand working hours to produce a hundred tons of steel. Eight hours a ton. For this, the state would pay them eight thousand labor notes of one hour each. And these eight thousand checks would be divided among the members of the ironworks, as they themselves thought proper. On the other hand, a hundred miners, having taken twenty days to extract eight thousand tons of coal, coal would be worth two hours a ton, and the sixteen thousand checks of one hour each received by the Guild of Miners would be divided among their members according to their own appreciation. If the miners protested and said that a ton of steel should only cost six hours work instead of eight, if the professor wished to have his day paid four times more than the nurse, then the state would interfere and settle their differences. Such is, in a few words, the organization the collectivists wish to see arise out of the social revolution. As we see, the principles are collective property of the instruments of production and remuneration to each according to the time spent in producing, while taking into account the productivity of his labor. As to the political system, it would be the parliamentary system, 
modified by positive instructions given to those elected, and by the referendum, a vote taken by nose or eyes by the nation. Let us own that this system appears to us simply unrealizable. Collectivists begin by proclaiming a revolutionary principle, the abolition of private property. And then they deny it, no sooner than proclaimed, by upholding an organization of production consumption which originated in private property. They proclaim a revolutionary principle and ignore the consequences that this principle will inevitably bring about. They forget that the very fact of abolishing individual property in the instruments of work, land, factories, road, capital, must launch society into absolutely new channels, must completely overthrow the present system of production, both in its aim as well as in its means, must modify daily relations between individuals, as soon as land, machinery, and all other instruments of production are considered common property. They say no private property, and immediately after strive to maintain private property in its daily manifestations. You shall be a commune as far as regards production, fields, tools, machinery, all that has been invented up till now, factories, railways, harbors, mines, etc. All are yours. Not the slightest distinction will be made concerning the share of each in this collective property. But from tomorrow, you will minutely debate the share you are going to take in the creation of new machinery, in the digging of new mines. You will carefully weigh what part of the new produce belongs to you. You will count your minutes of work, and you will take care that a minute of your neighbors should not buy more than yours. And as an hour measures nothing, as in some factories a worker can see to six power looms at a time, while in another he only tents two, you will weigh the muscular force, the brain energy, and the nervous energy you have expended. You will accurately calculate the years of apprenticeship in order to appraise the amount each will contribute to future production. And this, after having declared that you do not take into account his share in past production. Well, for us, it is evident that a society cannot be based on two absolutely opposed principles, two principles that contradict one another continually, and a nation or a commune which would have such an organization would be compelled to revert to private property in the instruments of production, or to transform itself into a communist society. Section 3. We have said that certain collectivist writers desire that a distinction should be made between qualified or professional work and simple work. They pretend that an hour's work of an engineer, an architect, or a doctor must be considered as two or three hours' work of a blacksmith, a mason, or a hospital nurse. And the same distinction must be made between all sorts of trades necessitating apprenticeship and the simple toil of day laborers. Well, to establish this distinction would be to maintain all the inequalities of present society. It would mean fixing a dividing line, from the beginning, between the workers and those who pretend to govern them. It would mean dividing society into two very distinct classes, the aristocracy of knowledge placed above on the horny-handed lower orders, the one doomed to serve the other, the one working with its hands to feed and clothe those who, profiting by their leisure, study how to govern their fosterers. It would mean reviving one of the distinct peculiarities of present society and giving it the sanction of the social revolution. 
It would mean setting up as a principle an abuse already condemned in our ancient crumbling society. We know the answer we shall get. They will speak of scientific socialism. They will quote bourgeois economists, and Marx too, to prove that a scale of wages has its raison d'etre, as the labor force of the engineer will have cost more to society than the labor force of the navvy. In fact, have not economists tried to prove to us that if an engineer is paid 20 times more than a navvy, it is because the necessary outlay to make an engineer is, is greater than that necessary to make a navvy? And has not Marx asserted that the same distinction is equally logical between two branches of manual labor? He could not conclude otherwise, having taken up on his own account Ricardo's theory of value, and upheld that goods are exchanged in proportion to the quantity of work socially necessary for their production. But we know what to think of this. We know that if engineers, scientists, or doctors are paid ten or a hundred times more than a laborer, and if a weaver earns three times more than an agricultural laborer, and ten times more than a girl in a match factory, it is not by reason of their cost of production, but by reason of a monopoly of education, or a monopoly of industry. Engineers, scientists, and doctors merely exploit their capital, their diplomas, as middle-class employers exploit a factory, or as nobles used to exploit their titles of nobility. As to the employer who pays an engineer 20 times more than a laborer, it is simply due to personal interest. If the engineer can economize £4,000 a year on the cost of production, the employer pays him £800. And if the employer has a foreman who saves £400 on the work by cleverly sweating workmen, he gladly gives him £80 or £120 a year. He parts with an extra £40 when he expects to gain £400 by it. And this is the essence of the capitalist system. The same differences obtain among different manual trades. Let them, therefore, not talk to us about the cost of production, which raises the cost of skilled labour, and tell us that a student who has gaily spent his youth in university has a right to a wage ten times greater than the son of a miner who has grown pale in a mine since the age of eleven, or that a weaver has a right to a wage three or four times greater than that of an agricultural labourer. The cost of teaching a weaver his work is not four times greater than the cost of teaching a peasant his. The weaver simply benefits by the advantages his industry reaps in international trade from countries that have as yet no industries, and in consequence of the privileges accorded by all states to industries in preference to the tilling of the soil. Nobody has ever calculated the cost of production of a producer, and if a noble loafer costs far more to society than a worker, it remains to be seen whether a robust day labourer does not cost more to society than a skilled artisan. When we have taken into account infant mortality among the poor, the ravages of anemia, and premature deaths. Could they, for example, make us believe that the one shilling three pence paid to a Paris workwoman, the three pence paid to an Auvergne peasant girl who grows blind at lace-making, or the one shilling eight pence paid to the peasant represent their cost of production. We know full well that people work for less. 
but we also know that they do so exclusively because, thanks to our wonderful organization, they would die of hunger did they not accept these mock wages. For us, scale of remuneration is a complex result of taxes, of governmental tutelage, of capitalist monopoly, in a word, of state and capital. Therefore, we say that all wages theories have been invented after the event to justify injustices at present existing, and that we need not take them into consideration. Neither will they fail to tell us that the collectivist scale of wages would be an improvement. Quote, it would be better, so they say, to see certain artisans receiving a wage two or three times higher than common laborers than to see a minister receiving in a day what a workman cannot earn in a year. It would be a great step towards equality. End quote. For us, this step would be the reverse of progress. To make a distinction between simple and professional work in a new society would result in the revolution sanctioning and recognizing as a principle a brutal fact we submit to nowadays, but that we nevertheless find unjust. It would mean imitating those gentlemen of the French Assembly who proclaimed on August 4th, 1789, the abolition of feudal rights, but who on August 8th sanctioned these same rights by imposing Jews on the peasants to compensate the noblemen, placing these Jews under the protection of the revolution. It would mean imitating the Russian government, which proclaimed, at the time of the emancipation of the serfs, that certain lands should henceforth belong to the nobility, while formerly these lands were considered as belonging to the serfs. Or else, to take a better known example, when the Commune of 1871 decided to pay members of the Commune Council 12 shillings 6 pence a day, while the Federates on the ramparts received only 1 shilling 3 pence. This decision was hailed as an act of superior democratic equality. In reality, the Commune only ratified the former inequality between functionary and soldier, government and governed. Coming from an opportunist chamber of deputies, such a decision would have appeared admirable. But the Commune doomed her own revolutionary principles when she failed to put them into practice. Under our existing social system, when a minister gets paid £4,000 a year, while a workman must content himself with £40 or less, when a foreman is paid two or three times more than a workman, and among workmen there is every gradation, from eight shillings a day down to the peasant girl's three pence, we disapprove of the high salary of the minister as well as of the difference between the eight shillings of the workman and the three pence of the poor woman. And we say, down with the privileges of education as well as with those of birth. We are anarchists precisely because these privileges revolt us. They revolt us already in this authoritarian society. Could we endure them in a society that began by proclaiming equality? This is why some collectivists, understanding the impossibility of maintaining a scale of wages in a society inspired by the breath of the revolution, hasten to proclaim equality of wage. But they meet with new difficulties, and their equality of wages becomes the same unrealizable utopia as the scale of wages of other collectivists. A society having taken possession of all social wealth, having boldly proclaimed the right of all to this wealth, whatever share they may have taken in producing it, will be compelled to abandon any system of wages, whether in currency or labor notes. And that concludes our reading for this week. Next week we will finish that chapter and go on to the next one. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or corrections, 
you can email leftistreading at gmail.com, or you can also find the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. If you go to abnormalmapping.com, you can find all sorts of different leftist podcasts about things like video games, books, anime, movies. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at sandimage.org. And that'll do it for me this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.